John chapter 1, beginning with verse 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some came readily and immediately. Some heard and they saw and they followed without question or without concern for their own safety or personal goals. Others, however, had questions. Others were cynical from life's experiences from the pain that they felt over the years. Others had to know in their heads that it made sense, that it was rational, that it had some basis in fact before they would follow. Even so, everyone seemed to have one thing in common. Every, every person had somebody, another person, invite them to come and see. A friend, a co-worker, a family member invited them to experience for themselves. Oh yes, God is, God is the one who changes hearts. Faith is initiated by God himself. It's true. But at the same time, God uses other people. He makes his appeal, his invitation, his call to faith through other human beings. And that's the call to evangelism for everyone who's experienced salvation in Jesus Christ to go and tell, to go and to make disciples, teaching, baptizing. Jesus intended us to go and tell, to be his disciple who makes disciples. And the first step in making disciples is the invitation. Come and see. Tell your story. Invite the cynical, the naysayer, and the ne'er-do-well. Evangelism doesn't mean that you change hearts or dispositions or that you make somebody believe or force them to. No, you invite them. You invite somebody to come and see for themselves, experience this for themselves. And in so doing, we begin the process of making disciples as Jesus intended for us. And so Jesus models this start of the disciple-making process in John chapter 1. And if you look carefully, you'll see various versions of the words to find or to see repeated in our passage. Beginning back in verse 35, after two disciples of John the Baptist heard John the Baptist say, look, there's the Lamb of God, they immediately followed Jesus. 
And when they asked Jesus where he was going or where he was staying, verse 39, Jesus said, come and see. And they went and saw, it says. So Jesus finds Andrew in Judea, and in verse 41, it says the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. And he brought him to Jesus. He said, we have found the Messiah, the Christ. Then in our reading today, with verse 43, the very next day, Jesus leaves for the region of Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to them, follow me. He said to him, follow me. So Jesus finds Andrew, Andrew finds Simon Peter, and then Jesus finds Philip, and Philip in turn finds Nathanael. In verse 45 it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Finding others to tell about Jesus and introducing them to Jesus seems to be the natural thing to do once you've experienced the word made flesh. Keep in mind, we're still in the same chapter. Chapter 1, in the beginning, was the word, and the word was with God. The word was made flesh. It seemed to be a natural thing to do. Come and see for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Come and see, listen, learn. Open your hearts to him. He's the one who will do the convincing. Each disciple brings someone. Intentionally, each disciple brings someone to Jesus. Why? Because disciples make disciples. But Nathaniel is one of those cynical ones I told you about. He also seems to be the student of Scripture, since Philip mentions that he's found the one Moses wrote about in the law and that the prophets wrote about too. He seems to be very familiar with these Scriptures. And maybe he was even reading them when Jesus, well, no, it wasn't Jesus who called him. It was Philip called him, verse 48, to follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus came through Philip. And all the early disciples seem to have been from this small fishing village called Bethsaida, this small town just on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The lake doesn't reach there, the village now, these days. Uh, but back then it did. Archaeologists today can find fishing implements in the ground around that area too. Capernaum's not very far away either. But I think the importance of these geographical details in our passage lies in the highway that they are near. These towns of these early disciples lie along a major highway system called the Via Maris. But not only that or because of that, the area also seems to be ethnically mixed. Philip is a Greek name. Nathaniel is a Hebrew name. There's a mingling of cultures here at this crossroads of this highway system. And it's interesting that Jesus calls his first disciples not from Jerusalem, not from a Hebrew hub, not from a Jewish enclave, but from this mixed group and this place where the spreading of the word would become, well, viral, being so close to this highway system with traders coming and going. So the gospel was meant to spread not just to certain circles or certain cities, but to all circles and all cities of the world. So the gospel of John chapter 1 covers a lot of territory. Like I said, it begins in the beginning with the word of God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, who is God himself, it says in verse 18. And then chapter 1 tells us about John the Baptist preparing the way and how he baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And then the chapter moves to the witness and calling passages. 
John gives witness to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Why is he the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God has these Old Testament overtones, right? He points us back to the sacrificial system, right? Jesus is not called the Lamb of God because he's cute, cuddly, and nice, as some believe. Ask your children later today. Why is Jesus called the Lamb of God? It'd be interesting to see what kind of questions you get. So John points to Jesus as the Lamb of God. He downplays his own role. And then Jesus calls the disciples, who then invite others to become disciples, fellow followers of Jesus. So Philip tells Nathanael that he's found the one the scriptures have written about, or told him about, the Messiah. Nathanael should be especially curious about this, since he seems to be very familiar with these scriptures. But his reaction is more, meh. Verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? What that small backwater town, what good can come from there? Now, we don't hear a whole lot about Nathaniel in the Gospels. He's there at the beginning. He seems to be there at the end. We assume he's there throughout the ministry of Jesus. But he's kind of a mystery disciple as far as what we know from the Gospels. But he's the first cynic. He's the first one who doesn't get up and follow immediately. He doesn't have faith right away. So Philip says to him, don't take my word for it. Get up off your duff and go see for yourself. The best evidence is what someone can experience for themselves. And Philip knows this. Come and see. So the head knowledge of the scriptures that Nathaniel has been reading is about to meet the reality of God in the flesh. Nathaniel is about to have an epiphany. Philip, with the Greek name, brings Nathaniel with the Hebrew name to Jesus. And as they're approaching Jesus, verse 47, Jesus says this about Nathaniel. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus supernaturally knows Nathaniel's an honest man who knows the scriptures. Of course, Nathaniel wonders, how? How do you know me? So Jesus responds, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. And apparently that was enough for Nathaniel. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, Nathaniel doesn't follow. He, he doesn't believe until he has had his own personal encounter with the living Christ. Come and see, said Philip. Ah, but Jesus saw him first. In verse 50, Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. You will see greater things than that. Nathaniel's profession of faith comes, or names Jesus as rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. Jesus is the spiritual teacher, but he's more than that. He's the son of God. He is the true king of Israel, too. You see, Jesus calls Nathaniel a true Israelite. Why would he call him that? Because he's an honest man and he recognizes the things of God when he sees them right in front of his face. He knows the scriptures and he responds in faith, publicly, unashamed, to declare his faith. He's a true Israelite. It's what Jesus wants to see of the others. So Jesus uses some allusions to the Old Testament here, doesn't he? There is no deceit in Nathaniel, Jesus says. He's not like Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, you'll remember. Jacob, who deceived his brother and father. He's not a trickster, 
He's honest and forthright, and he seeks to know the truth. He won't take anything for granted, though, because he's seen a number of charlatans come to town and pretend to be the Messiah. But when he does confront the reality of Christ before him, he responds in faith. That's why he's a true Israelite. He's a true disciple. He responds in faith. You will see greater things, Jesus tells him. And then in verse 51, it is as if he is addressing the other disciples here as well, because the second you there is actually plural. Very truly, I tell you, y'all will see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the best way to say it, y'all. Jesus is the one on whom heaven opens and angels ascend and descend. What, what is this reminding us of? The stairway to heaven, right? Now, I'm not talking about the guitar song. Um, but back in Genesis, chapter 28, Jacob had a dream of angels ascending and descending a ladder. And when he woke up, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely Yahweh, God, is in this place. He called that place Bethel, or the house of God, or the gate of heaven. So what is Jesus saying here, using this language? Jesus is saying, he, that is who he is, the house of God, the gate of heaven. Jesus is God's man on earth. He's the contact point on earth, the point of connection between earth and heaven. This is an epiphany to the early disciples of who Jesus says he is. And the Bible-loving Nathaniel would have immediately picked up on this Old Testament allusion or reference. Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely Yahweh is here standing right in front of me. God in the flesh. So Jesus finds Andrew. Andrew finds Simon Peter. Jesus finds Philip. Philip finds Nathaniel. That's the model. Disciples making disciples as they invite others to come and see Come and experience for yourself. Come and ask questions. Seek. Profess your faith, that, a faith that may surprise you as much as it surprises others who know you really well. Just as God saw Nathaniel first, God sees us first, and he knows us first. And this personal experience of knowing Jesus helps sustain the disciple of every generation when they're going through difficult times. We speak of that original epiphany or revelation of Jesus coming to our awareness, but as many of us know, there are many epiphanies, many revelations throughout our life. Sometimes there is an acute awareness of our sinfulness and our sin, and we're driven to our knees in confession and repentance. God, forgive me. Sometimes we're caught up in the rapture during a time of singing and worship, tears streaming from our eyes. Our hearts are elevated. We become acutely aware of God's majesty, his love, his holiness. Still at other times, we're made aware of God's truth found in the Bible that changes the way we think about things. And when we change the way we think about things, we change the way we, the things that we do, the way we behave. Our life has changed and transformed. So that's the nature of discipleship, isn't it? It's not just a one-time thing. It's a process that continues through a lifetime. Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they were just beginning when they had their first epiphany of Jesus. You will see greater things. 
Being a disciple of Jesus means more than that first raising of the hand or walking down an aisle or making a public profession of faith or whatever it was like for you. That's the start. Being introduced to Jesus or you introducing someone to Jesus, that's the start of a relationship, and that's great. But Jesus and the Bible have many, many things to say about life. Money, how we use it. Sex, and how we use it. Forgiving people, loving others, taking care of family, being truthful, praying faithfully, loving God more than things, and many, many more topics. And sometimes we learn something new in each stage of life, don't we? Like when we get married and we learn that we have to share everything with one other human being. Or when we have a child and we have to sacrifice so much to care for somebody so helpless. Or when we're older and we have to learn how to depend upon others for the things that we used to do for ourselves without thinking. We learn different things at different stages of life. That's the nature of discipleship, of following Jesus throughout our whole lifetime. When I lived in the state of Washington, we would go months on end with nothing but clouds and darkness and rain and rain and rain, drizzle rain. No, no, the clouds weren't up there somewhere. The clouds were on the ground. The clouds, the clouds lived on the ground in Washington. And no sense using an umbrella. Umbrellas were for tourists anyways. Uh, you still got wet no matter what. Wet to the bone cold to the bone. There's very little snow in the wintertime where I live, and only rain and clouds for months and months. Uh, but every once in a while, every once in a while, the skies would clear, the air would dry up, the visibility would be more than a quarter of a mile, m much more actually sometimes. Some days, though, some glorious days, you, you could see far into the distance if your eyes could adjust by then. And, and you didn't have to work in a building with no windows. Some days, driving to work early in the morning, the clouds and the fog would lift long enough for me to see the effects of a sunrise. Not the sunrise itself, but the effects of a sunrise. You see, one of the most beautiful features of the Pacific Northwest is the mountains that exist there. Um, but you often forgot they were there, especially in the wintertime, because you never saw them. And on that day when the air dried up, I could see the snow-capped mountains ahead of me as I drove west into work. But the mountains weren't white, as you might expect. They were orange, a brilliant color of orange, with a backdrop of this crisp blue sky. That moment or that day usually wouldn't last long, but it was a glorious moment. It, Sometimes, I think I actually did once, pull off to the side of the road, I just have to take it in. Because you knew it wasn't going to be there forever. Before eventually you forget the mountains were even there again. Well, in life we go through seasons like, like that. Seasons of darkness, of cloudiness, nothing but a steady rain of bad news. And uh, it's hard to remember that God is there because it's difficult to see him when you're in the clouds and the fog. But he's still there. He still sees us. And every once in a while, even during the cloudiest seasons of life, the rain stops, the fog lifts, and God reveals a bit of his glory to us. That might be a new insight into scripture for you. 
or a hymn of praise song that touches your heart, or a prayer or a card from someone letting you know that somebody cares, an assurance of forgiveness, a check in the mail, something that reminds you that God is there, that his glory still shines, and that he's still got you even during this dark season of life. Discipleship is learning to walk with Jesus even on cloudy days. It's more than just one decision. We remember the experience we've had with him, our first epiphany, and we continue to build on that, an ongoing relationship with Jesus, even when the feelings aren't there. And as we continue to build experiences of trust, we continue to have stories to tell. So when we know someone walking in the clouds of darkness or rain, we can come alongside and remind them or introduce them for the very first time to the one who is above the clouds and say, he's still there. He's still there. He sees you. You'll see if you believe. You'll see greater things if you follow. May it be so. Let us pray. God, you are there even when it's difficult to see you. You are above the clouds of life, and yet you know what we're dealing with in the clouds because you've been there in Jesus. Give us the courage this day to trust you, rely upon you, and then one day to be able to tell the story and to help someone else come and see you for themselves, maybe even for the very first time. Help us to be disciples and disciple makers and not merely decision makers. For we need you every day of our lives, Lord, and we have a lot to learn. May you be glorified throughout our lives, for it is in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.